If you would, open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. We are going to read a passage together, and then I'm really not going to reference it again throughout the course of the message. But as we read it, I want to encourage you to listen very critically, asking yourself if you might fit into the category of what Jeremiah is talking about. We're in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, and out of respect for the Word of God, I'd ask you to stand as Tina comes and reads this. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'm encouraging you to grab one out of the chair racks in front of you so that you'll be able to follow along through the entire message. You need to see what we're studying today for yourselves. Jeremiah, chapter 7, starting in verse 21. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Verse 24, listen to this again. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed their stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Now let's pray together. Father in heaven, the odds say that we are all guilty of moving backward at times in our relationship with you. Forward is the goal. Would you help us achieve it? In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. One of the great joys for me of living in northwest Montana is the fact that I have gotten to learn a great deal about an industry that I had absolutely no experience with prior to moving to northwest Montana. Now, a lot of you, if you've worshipped with us very long, you know that I'm from the state of Kansas. There's a big difference between Kansas and Montana. One of the big differences is this. There's very little logging in Kansas. There's a little bit. They cut down a few trees. Most of them are hardwood trees. They make beautiful furniture out of it, make beautiful trim out of it, all kinds of different things. But you do not see loaded logging trucks driving around the state of Kansas. Well, moving up here, I got to attach myself to some people that have been a part of that industry for a long time, and I've had the privilege of learning a lot about it. Now, I wouldn't say that that makes me a logger. It just means that I know something about it. I heard this story. Maybe you've heard it as well. This comes from a fellow that had loved that industry all of his life. His father was a logger, grandfather before him was a logger, and he had become a logger because it was just in his blood. His name is John. He loves everything about logging. He loves dropping trees. He loves skidding trees. He loves processing trees and loading trees. That's just one of the things that drives him. When he and his wife began to have children, he wanted his sons to love it as much as he does. He wanted them to grow up with that logging heritage and that burning desire to be in the woods the same way he grew up with it. Everything was, was meshing and gelling exactly the way it was supposed to in John's world. When his oldest son reached the age of 10 or 11, he asked his dad if he could go to work with him. His dad got a big smile on his face. He was thinking, oh, I've been waiting for this. I'm glad you want to come with me. So John pulled him out of school and took him out to the woods with him on one particular day. As they were driving out there, his son was telling him how excited he was. He'd been listening to the stories his dad had told and the stories his grandfather had told. He was talking about what it was like when the guys would come over and sit in the shop and they would all tell stories from the woods and he was so excited to be a part of that. When they got to the site, John got out of the truck and his son stayed inside. 
couldn't figure that out. He asked him if he was coming. He said, in a little bit, Dad. So John got out and he started taking care of business, getting everything ready to go the way you do when you first show up on the job site. And his son stayed in the truck. John went to work, found out that his boy actually did get out of the truck at one point, but he never left the side of the road, never went into the woods. He didn't want to ask him much about that. He just wanted to see what would happen the next time this scenario set itself up. And, and sure enough, the next time he took his son to work with him was the same thing. Boy didn't want to leave the road. He wanted to stay within sight of the truck. So finally, John said, I've I got to find out what's going on with him. And he sat down with his son and he said, Son, you wanted to go to work with me. You want to be a logger and, and you love all these things associated with it. How come you won't leave the side of the road? How come you won't leave the sight of the truck? And his son said, because of the ghosts. And he said, what in the world are you talking about? He said, because of the ghost. He said, what ghost? And his son said, well, I've heard that there are ghosts in the woods. And if I go out into the woods, then they're going to get me. So I want to go to work with you, Dad, but I don't want to go into the woods because the ghosts are there and they're going to get me. John didn't know what to do with that. He wasn't sure what to say. It's one of those moments that dads are just kind of pushed up against the ropes and left thinking about it. He didn't know where to go with it at all. So he thought about it for a good long while. Then he sat down with his son and and in an attempt to help him work through this thought that there are ghosts in the woods, he reached up around his neck and he pulled off a bandana that he wore every day. His son saw him every day when he went to work with that bandana around his neck. When he would come home at night, that bandana was around his neck. So he pulled that bandana off and he said, now son, you know that I'm a logger. And his son said, yeah, I do. And he said, what you might not know is that the ghosts in the woods, they are scared of me. And if you wear this bandana, then they're going to be scared of you too and they won't be able to touch you or harm you. His son took that bandana, tied it around his neck, big smile on his face, wore it everywhere that he went. He wore it to school, he wore it to church, he wore it everywhere. People would ask about the bandana, he'd point to that bandana and he'd say, I'm a logger, see my bandana? He wanted everybody to know that he was his father's son, he was a logger. So his dad took him to work the next time, this is after he'd gotten that bandana and was wearing it everywhere that he went, took him out to job site. When they got there, John got out of the truck, his son got out of the truck, but he wouldn't go into the woods. Still wouldn't go. His dad asked him about it, and he said, there's still ghosts out there, Dad. They're going to get me. John would tell you later that he'd have been a lot better off to have sat with his son and told him the truth than to simply give him a symbol to try to make him feel better. He should have sat down and told him that there are no such thing as ghosts rather than giving him a symbol to tie around his neck, believing that that might change his perspective, believing that that symbol might make him strong and make him able to overcome his fear. John didn't do him any justice by giving him a symbol. Now, I tell you that story to tell you this. The church has been guilty, just like that, from the very beginning, of giving people symbols rather than teaching them the truth particularly within the realm of freedoms in Christ and the depth of grace that we have. We give people symbols to help them believe that they are Christian rather than teaching them the truth, which is this. What you really need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And no matter how many symbols you might have in your life, those things do not make you a Christian. They do not save you. This has been a wrestling match from the beginning days of the church. Symbols have been given as a means of replacing the truth. Symbols have been given rather than people sitting down and boldly proclaiming the freedoms that we do have in Jesus Christ. 
It's easier for us to give symbols. It's easier for us to give lists. It's easier for us to tell people how to live in Christ rather than encouraging them to learn to live in Christ. And symbols do not save. I want to show you what I'm talking about this morning. And and please understand, last week I started a series of messages called Hard to Believe. And we're dealing with some things from Scripture that are just pointedly hard to believe. And this one may not be so much hard to believe as much as it is hard to accept. And you'll see why. I'm going to be talking a lot to the church today. To people that have grown up in the church, that have a strong history in the church. If you're like me, you probably have things that you have to overcome in this regard. And as I said, you'll see why as we go through this. If you would take your Bibles and open to the book of Galatians, we're going to start there, and then we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to go a lot of different places. But the book of Galatians, for a long time, has been referred to as the smoking gun of the New Testament. And it is called that because of the way Paul uses his writings to the church in Galatia to deal with some misconceptions about freedoms in Christ. He comes right out of the gates, shooting at them. That's why it's called the smoking gun. It is very pointed. It is very direct. And all you have to do is start in the first chapter, and you'll see why. So join me. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now here's what's going on. When the New Testament church just got going, there were a group of people that were being ministered to by the Apostle Paul. They were referred to as the Gentiles. They were not of Jewish descent. Then the Jews were being ministered to by other apostles, apostles like James and apostles like Peter. A number of Gentiles, because of Paul's ministry and the others that were preaching alongside him, were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. They were becoming the church. And a number of Jews, because of what Peter was preaching and what James was preaching, they were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And that was tough for them because they had this long faith history that said all of their relationship to God was tied to their actions, to their good works. So the Jews were becoming Christians, the Gentiles were becoming Christians, and the church was coming together. By the way, the Apostle Paul would later on say that one of the great mysteries of the gospel is how the Jews and the Gentiles could come together. One of the great mysteries of Jesus Christ is the fact that he could bring those two backgrounds together. And that's what was happening in the early days of the church. But as the Jews were coming into the church where the Gentiles were at, they were looking at the Gentiles and saying, you're not quite as righteous as we are. You're not quite as holy as we are. Because you have not been circumcised. And the Gentiles hadn't been circumcised. The Jews had been. Circumcision was an outward sign of the Old Testament covenant. 
If you go back to the book of Genesis and you start reading in chapter 15, you go through chapter 19, you will see circumcision. You'll see how it came about. You'll see that it is a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. All of that will be evident to you. Well, the Jews had lived with that all of their lives. They knew that circumcision is what made you holy. It was their action. It was their work. So now here they are with these uncircumcised Gentiles telling them that it is great that they have accepted the love of God. It is great that they have accepted the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. It is great that they have found salvation and forgiveness, but it's not enough. You need to be circumcised. And a lot of the Gentiles were buying into it. A lot of them were saying, we want no part of it. But the others were buying into it. The gospel that had been preached that Paul was talking about in Galatians was this, that you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is accept the love of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe that He is your Lord and Savior. That's what salvation is. It is an interpersonal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not an outward act. Paul would later on say this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by works, not by anything that you have done. This is Phil's paraphrase. Not by anything that you have done or can do. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. There were a bunch of Jews that were boasting. They were boasting about their circumcision. They were boasting about how righteous and holy they were and how unrighteous and unholy the Gentiles were because they had never been circumcised. So Paul now is having to address that to the church in Galatia. And he says, somehow these people have snuck in among you and they have started to teach and preach a gospel that is no gospel at all. And they're to be eternally condemned if they're teaching you that you have to do something besides except Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Don't pay any attention to them. Don't listen to them because they're pointing you to bandanas. They're pointing you towards symbols. And folks, symbols do not save. They do not save. Only Jesus does. And that was this problem that the early church had. They began to distort different things and turn those into salvation. Still goes on today. We still give people all kinds of symbols and point them to them saying that that's what salvation really is rather than pointing them to Jesus Christ. And a lot of people have worn those symbols around their neck like bandanas for a long, long time, believing that those were their outward sign of salvation. And it just isn't right. Not at all. And the Bible teaches it, the New Testament teaches it, all the way through because it was such a huge wrestling match. And it didn't have to do only with circumcision. There were a lot of other things that were happening in the church that today we would refer to as legalism. Legalism happens all the time as people begin to lord their viewpoints, their opinions, their thoughts over God's thoughts in the lives of other people. So I want us to explore that just a little bit more. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. On our way, it would probably do us well to just take a, a moment and define what legalism really is. These are Charles Swindoll's words. I wrote them down yesterday afternoon. Legalism is an attitude based on pride. It is an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. A legalist assumes the place of authority and pushes it to unwarranted extremes. That's a good way of looking at it. The legalist is a person that wants to lord their outward signs, their actions, over everyone else. You probably know some legalist. You may have grown up in the church and you wrestle against it yourself. 
And it is a wrestling match that the church has to deal with, especially those just like me that have been born and raised in the church. If we're not careful, bandanas could be handed out all the time. And we could start telling people all kinds of legalistic things, the do's and the don'ts of our own opinions, and we can get a long ways away from the Bible. Let me show you one of the ways that that happened in Scripture. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. This is going to be kind of a, a silly example for us. It was very cultural for that day, and I'll explain the whole example as we go through it. Verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come or came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Here's what's going on. During the days of the, the early church, there was the temple in Jerusalem where the Jews went to worship. There were synagogues in all of the communities where the Jews went to worship. Surrounding those synagogues, there were temples to all kinds of other false gods, and they were everywhere. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, you had the temple where people would come to worship, or the synagogue where people would come to worship Jehovah God, and right next to it, in either direction, were multiple temples to false gods. And a lot of the worship would look the same, particularly the issue of meat being sacrificed, animals being sacrificed. People would take, the Jews would take animals into the temple in Jerusalem. They would give them to the high priest. The high priest would sacrifice them on their behalf. Well, the same thing was happening in all of these other small temples in all of the different communities. There was a lot of sacrificing going on. And it wasn't just animals in this region of Caesarea Philippi, right next to the synagogue where people would go to worship the Lord, there was this temple to the Greek god Pan that had a big open spring right in front of it. They would take animals, they would take babies, and they would throw them into that water. And it was supposed that if the, the animal or the baby was swallowed up within the water and came shooting out the river a, a mile or so down the way, then the Greek god Pan had accepted their sacrifice. Now that's, that's just nasty, absolutely terrible. But in all these other temples, they were taking in the animals and sacrificing them on the altars, just like they would have in Jerusalem. Because of that, there was an excess of meat. None of the priests could keep up with all the meat that was sacrificed in their temples, so they would sell it. You could go to one of two different kinds of markets. You could go to a market that was made up of pure meat, 
that was meat that was butchered for the purpose of selling it to be consumed. It was really expensive. Or you could go across the road and you could shop at one of these markets that was selling meat sacrificed to idols. It was a lot cheaper. A number of people had come to a place in their walk with the Lord where they realized that meat sacrificed to idols was nothing more than meat. That's all it was. So they would go into these cheaper markets and they would buy the cheap meat and they would take it home and they would cook it up for the family and they would eat it. Or they would invite other people to come over and eat it. But there were people that were coming out of a background of idol worship that were really having a hard time with that. And they would say that there's no way that a Christian should eat that type of meat. You can only buy from the expensive market. You can only buy the meat that was butchered for this purpose. Stay away from meat sacrificed to idols. And this type of teaching was really infiltrating the church. Paul had to preach and teach against it. And he did for 14 years. For 14 years, Paul would say, it's just meat. Eat the meat. Don't worry about it, because that meat means nothing. Their gods are nothing, so eat the meat. But the church couldn't get past it. They continued to struggle and fight against one another with it. So finally, the Apostle Paul said, we're going to go back to Jerusalem, we're going to meet with the other apostles, and we're going to hear what they have to say on this issue. That conversation is recorded in Acts chapter 15. Turn there with me, would you? Acts chapter 15. This is called the Jerusalem Council. The apostles were all together. When Paul came and presented this issue to them, they chose to address it in the form of a letter. That letter is right here. In verse 23, we'll pick up with where the letter begins. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The church of that day, like the church of today, wanted the apostles to give them a list of do's and don'ts. They just wanted them to say, you can do this or you can't do that. Just tell us how to live. They wanted a bandana. They wanted symbols. It'd be a lot easier if you would just give us that list and then we would know what to do. That was Judaism. But the apostles, because they were driven by the Holy Spirit, said, we're not going to do that. Instead, what they did was give their thoughts. It would be good if you would do these things. It'd be good for you if you avoided meat sacrificed to idols, and there's a reason for that in just a minute, if you would avoid blood, if you would avoid those other things. And they didn't say you have to do that. They just said it would be good if you did. That's the sum total extent of the rules that they would apply to this New Testament church. Yet all these people wanted them to say, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. Boy, it's no different than the church today. Tell me what I can do. Tell me how far I can go. Tell me what limits I can push. Tell me what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And it just isn't right. In my prayer group in the mornings on Sundays, we were talking about this very thing, and Danny Brossman was telling us about night. I set him up for this. I said, Danny, you were born and raised in the church. Tell me what's on that list. And Danny, without missing a beat, he just started to give all the things that the church teaches are unacceptable. And he also began to give the things that the church teaches are acceptable. But it was a lot easier to come up with what was unacceptable. And Danny knew it. 
because he had been raised that way. Those kinds of lists have existed forever. It's not meat sacrificed to idol, but it's things like this. Good Christian would never think about dancing. Good Christian would never do that. Well, my two sons are guilty, absolutely guilty. Last night was the Libby High School homecoming dance. My boys were there. They were born and raised in the church same way I am. And I, I have told them forever, dancing is wrong. Ray Miller, by the way, pointed this out to me <laughs> right after first service. This is great. He said, do you think there was a distortion a long time ago that the church fathers were actually saying that Christians can't dance? It's not that they shouldn't dance. It's that they can't dance. It's... <laughs> That's a great way of looking at it. It really is. So my boys were at the homecoming dance last night, and they would tell you that I have a propensity for exaggerating things, so I would tell them why they aren't supposed to dance, and this is what I would tell them. You get out there, and you start listening to the beat of that rock and roll music, and it starts out with that fast dance, and your arms going everywhere, and before long, you have your arms around some girl, and you're swaying back and forth, and then somebody gets pregnant. That's the teaching of the church. That's the way it works. And so therefore, no Christian should ever dance. Not ever. But do you realize the Bible teaches that dancing is not only acceptable, it is acceptable in worship? Isn't that right, Ray? It's acceptable in worship. So to say that Christians shouldn't dance is going against what the Bible says, yet the church has said forever that Christians shouldn't dance. It's a bandana. It's a symbol. I don't dance. Now I'm more in Ray Miller's camp. I can't dance, so I don't dance. That's why I don't. My boys apparently got their mother's rhythm. I, good for them. They can dance. And it works. And I don't want to harness them by saying, you can't dance because that's unbiblical. It's not. Yet the church might teach that it is. The church might say that you shouldn't do that kind of stuff. It's the same as eating meat sacrificed to idols. We're not going to do it because it's wrong. We're not going to do it because it's bad. We're not going to do it because, well, somebody will get pregnant. That's all that, that's going to happen every time. That's just the way it works. You know other things that, that get on that same list. You could search scripture and not find any kind of a prohibition against it, yet the church would say don't do it. Even the apostles would not go that far because they wanted people to understand freedoms in Christ. Jesus came that those rules and regulations would no longer govern us. There are freedoms now in Christ. And it became such a big issue that even the apostles thought about it. Paul, he was a Jew. He was raised that way. Paul knew all of their laws. He knew all of their rules. He knew all of their regulations. But when he became a believer, those things didn't matter to him anymore. When he became a Christian, he put them behind. Here's one of the visible signs of that. Until Paul became a Christian, he had never tasted pork. He had never eaten a piece of bacon. He had never had any ham. He had no idea what good cured meats tasted like. When he became a Christian, he fell in love with them like anybody of sound mind would. Big piece of bacon. Peter had never tasted any of that either. When he became a Christian, because of a vision that he received, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, he found out that it was okay to eat meat. Peter started eating all of that meat. But then when Peter would get around the Jews that were having a big wrestling match, a big struggle with this type of stuff, Peter wouldn't eat it anymore. And Paul had to call him on the carpet for it. He had to say, Peter, what are you doing? You're taking people backwards instead of forward because you're still attaching those types of rules to this whole argument. Their battle is actually recorded. I love this. In the book of Galatians. Go there with me. Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, these are Paul's words, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, Paul was an apostle. Peter was an apostle as well. Some people would argue that Peter was the greatest of the apostles. And when he is in Paul's backyard... He gets confronted by Paul. 
And Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was wrong. I'm going to go too far. I'm just going to tell you I'm going to go too far. This is just a great statement. It comes from the movie Hoosiers. Here it is. In that movie, somebody says, it's one thing to get naked and howl at the moon. It's another thing altogether to do it in my living room. Now that's a great statement. So that's what's going on. Peter has now come into Paul's living room and he's trying to take people backwards. He's trying to to move them away from freedom and grace into the Old Testament law simply by passively participating with them. So let's go on. Verse 12. Before certain men came from James, that's Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? There's the confrontation. Why are you making them do what the Old Testament law said? And more than that, why are you making them do what the Jewish customs said? Because that was acceptable to the Jews. You're trying to make the Gentiles live that way? Shame on you. Because you're destroying the freedom that exists in Christ. And you're doing it through legalism. You're doing it by giving them bandanas. Moving on, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That was their confrontation. It was a pretty good one. Paul had to say, Peter, what are you doing? Stop this. Yet there's another level to it. And this is one of the really interesting ones. When we understand our freedom in Christ and we understand what it means to live within those freedoms, other people come into play in it. And Paul addressed that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you were listening real close, you heard it. Here's what was going on. Let's go back to meat sacrifice to idols. A lot of the folks that were coming out of idol worship and into Christ, they knew what happened in those temples. They knew what that meat signified to them. So they were having these things within the New Testament church. They were having these things called love feast, where the rich people would put on a big feast every week, and they would invite everybody to come and eat. All of the church was invited to come there. So they would walk in and start murmuring among themselves, what, where did the meat come from? Did that come from one of those idol temples? Did it come from the other market? Where did that meat come from? And they'd get into these small groups and just whisper among themselves, anyway, where do you think that meat came from? And then they would start prowling around trying to get the answer. You know, that might happen in Montana, but most other places not, where you might go up and say, what's in the lasagna? Is that mountain lion or beef? What are we looking at here? Well, they're doing the same thing. What's in that lasagna? Is it meat sacrificed to an idol or is it meat that came from the pure market? And if they found out it was meat sacrificed to the idols, they would start telling everybody else, don't have anything to do with that meat because that was meat sacrificed to the idols. It was rude. And now all of a sudden these hosts are embarrassed because they were trying to save money, so they bought this meat that is nothing more than meat, and they brought it into their house for a love feast. And people were so hung up on the law that they wouldn't participate in the meal because of where the meat came from. But Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you happen to be around weaker brothers and sisters that are struggling with this issue, then don't eat the meat. You heard Paul say it pretty pointedly. He said, if my eating the meat causes somebody else to stumble, I'll never eat the meat again. 
that is really an issue of leadership in the church. And I have long held that there is a big difference between Christian living and Christian leadership. And it comes out right here in the issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ and what I will do with my freedoms in Christ. Because sometimes in leadership, we give up freedoms that we don't cause anybody else to stumble. If you study this whole concept of freedoms in Christ out, what you find out is that it is weaker Christians that need the list. They need the bandana. They're the ones who need to know what is okay and what is not. As you grow in Christ and your knowledge increases, you find out that you have great freedoms. But because your knowledge is growing and your role in the church is growing, and now all of a sudden you're in a position of leadership, sometimes it's necessary for you to sacrifice some of those freedoms. Because if my eating the meat, or whatever you want to apply to that, causes somebody else to stumble, I'll never do it. That's what the Apostle Paul was teaching, and that's part of the depth of this concept of freedoms in Christ. For the sake of Jesus Christ and another man's conscience, I will give up some of my freedoms. Let me show you what the Bible teaches about this. We're going to go to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an observer is entrusted, or an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. In the issue of leadership, sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's necessary to surrender some freedoms that you don't cause anybody else to stumble. When that happens and how that happens is up to a lot of us individually because as we address different freedoms, we have to figure out what's okay for us and what's not okay for us what is it that's going to cause me to make somebody else stumble or worse what's going to cause me to stumble what do I need to give up that I might keep growing forward with Christ and not going backwards the issue of freedom in Christ really comes down to that a lot of you would still love it if I would stand up here and just give you a list here's what you can do and here's what you can't do and it doesn't work that way in the freedoms of Christ and in grace and the depth of grace, we have to figure it out for ourselves. We have to explore it on our own and we have to apply it to ourselves. Let me illustrate it for you this way. When we are little children, our parents keep a boundary around us and it's a very close boundary. That's good. That's safe. The same thing happens for us as Christians. Sometimes when we first become believers, a close boundary is what matters. And then as we grow and we mature, those boundaries get moved. That's the way it should be. We were talking with our kids here not too long ago, and they asked us about the time in our life when we had been the most scared, most scared we'd ever been. This is what I came up with. Not long after we had moved to Missouri, on a Sunday evening after church was over, Tina went down to the nursery to get Katie and Eli. Eli was there, Katie was not. And she got scared because that's where she dropped her off. There were literally hundreds of children in the nursery at that church and our daughter was gone. They couldn't find her anywhere. I was in charge of the security ministry so when Tina came back to me very worried about where Katie was, we shut the church down. I mean, we shut the church down. Nobody was leaving that building until we found Katie. 
And we went looking for her, myself and, and a number of other men. We were tearing the place up trying to find our daughter because she was not where she should have been. The nursery workers were feeling terrible because somehow Katie had gotten away. I went out into the parking lot. I was literally stopping cars and saying, do you have my daughter? Open your trunk. I'm going to find out who has my kid. On and on and on this goes because I, I have visions of my daughter's face on milk cartons. I'm scared to death that she's gone because somehow she had gotten outside of the boundary. Well, after searching everywhere, and it took quite some time, we found Katie up in one of the upstairs Sunday school rooms with a good friend of ours. Her name is Danielle. She was the daughter of, of some very good friends of ours. And Danielle, who had spent a lot of time with Katie, just grabbed her out of the nursery, and the nursery workers didn't really see it happen. Danielle grabbed her out of the nursery and had taken her upstairs, and they were just playing in this room, waiting for their parents to quit talking so they could leave church because, like our children, Danielle knew that they were going to be the last ones out, so she and Katie might as well go have a good time. But nobody knew it. And so everybody was terrified by it. That boundary is there for protection. The same thing happens when we are new in Christ. We have those types of boundaries. And in this study of freedom, we find those very things. We find those boundaries. Let me show you this. We're going back to the book of 1 Corinthians. And this time we'll skip over to chapter 10. Verse 23. Paul writes, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat, any, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising question of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Here's the teaching of boundaries within freedom. When we're young, we need the boundaries. As we grow and we mature, the boundaries move. Let me illustrate again for you how this works. The Bible says that the sexual relationship is to be between one man and one woman. By the way, this illustration is kind of crass. If you would like to take your children out into the lobby, I totally understand. The sexual relationship is between one man and one woman. Now, the Bible would go on to say that that is to happen inside the confines of marriage. That's the boundary. Tina and I both grew up in homes where that was taught. We grew up in churches where that was taught because that's what the Bible teaches. That's the boundary around the sexual relationship. So because we grew up in that, when we got engaged, we both were sexually pure. When we got married, we were both sexually pure because we understood that boundary. But on August 19th, 1989, that boundary moved for us. And now, rather than this being something that was off limits, it was a wonderful, beautiful gift from God given to us to enjoy within the safety of that new boundary. That still happens. That's still the way it works. That's the boundary. And there are several others that fit in that category. What might not have been right for you at a time in your life now is right. The boundary moves. But you have to figure out what those things are, and it's not always as clear-cut as that sexual relationship between a man and a wife. So, I want to give you four things to help with that. And we're going to do this really quick. The first one is this. 
As you look at all of your freedoms in Christ and you try to figure out whether they are good or not, you have to ask yourself this. Do I run the risk of becoming a slave to these freedoms? Will they control me? Which means this. Do they have addictive qualities in my life? And that is different, really, for everybody. Because what you might struggle with from an addictive standpoint, the next person may have absolutely no struggle with. Let me illustrate it for you. There are all kinds of different addictions. Now, because we're in the church, we can easily grab hold of some visible ones, things like drug abuse. Now, drugs are wrong. That is not a freedom in Christ. Drug use is completely and totally wrong. But that's this public one that we grab hold of. There's another thing that can easily become an addiction. Quilting. (laughs) Quilting can become addictive to certain people. Now, to somebody else, quilting may be absolutely no issue at all. But for some people, it can take hold of their life so much that it becomes an addiction. Now, before you laugh too much and think the quilters just need to be thrown under the bus, try this. Food can be an addiction for one person and no struggle for somebody else. Hunting can become an addictive issue in some people's lives and never be an issue for anybody else. We have an elder in this church sitting over here to my right. His name's Brian Stewart. I don't want you to know who he is because I appreciate anonymity, but it's Brian Stewart. And Brian would tell you that at one point in his life, he wrestled against an addiction to hunting and it controlled him. So even hunting, if it is left unchecked, can become like that. Work can fit in that same category. You can plug in all kinds of different things. Will this thing begin to master me? Here's what the Bible says about it so that you're not just taking it from me. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So as we start into this realm of our freedoms in Christ, we have to figure out, is this thing mastering me? Is it controlling me? Am I addicted to it? What do I need to do to break that addiction? Make sense? Okay, let's go on to the second boundary then. And this one can be pretty tough. Does it build me up or does it tear me down? We're going to stay in the book of 1 Corinthians, but go over to chapter 10 again. Verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. I have told you before, if you've been around the church very long at all, you know this to be true. I love Pepsi. I'm not exaggerating the sentiment, not even one little bit, when I tell you that I love Pepsi. I don't just like it. I love Pepsi. And I have loved it for a good long while. Three years ago, I had my last drink of Pepsi because I found out that Pepsi can be a contributor to the development of kidney stones. And I read that while I was laying in the fetal position, sucking my thumb, praying for sweet death because of a kidney stone. And so if you're in that position and you're wrestling with that type of a thing and you find out that you may have something in your life that's contributing to it, you will never do it again. Pepsi tears me down. Therefore, I need to never drink Pepsi again. And as God is my witness, I won't now. There's a big struggle in my house because my wife, who does not understand my weakness for Pepsi, continues to drink Pepsi in front of me. And the smell of Pepsi is amazing. When it goes over ice, it bubbles up and ha! So I sniff her Pepsi because she has no concern for my well-being whatsoever. And she just continues to drink in front of me. And by the way, she's not the only one. Where is Steve Lauer at? Steve, Steve is up in the video booth right now. There he is, holding up a Mountain Dew, just as big as life. 
Steve will walk into my office with a Mountain Dew, sit it on my desk, want to know if I want to take a drink with him. And then he'll say, oh yeah, you're not drinking caffeine anymore. I'll have to have this. And he opens it up and he drinks the Mountain Dew in front of me. They need to study 1 Corinthians chapter 10 on the weaker brother, stronger brother issue. You know what tears you down and you know what builds you up. One of those boundaries has to be, does this tear me down? And if it does, then it's a freedom in Christ that I need to walk away from. Here's the third one, though. Is it about you, or is that freedom about Jesus and how you perceive it? More often than not, we let our freedoms be about us because we're hardwired that way. Paul teaches that as we grow in maturity, they have to become about Christ, not just about us. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look just at verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Make sure that it's about Him and not about you as you wrestle your way through it. The fourth one, and this one's really important in this whole teaching. When you figure out what freedoms are there for you to claim, and again, they may be different than mine, when you figure out what those are and you are living within those boundaries and it is all about God and it is building you up, not tearing you down and it does not master you, all of those things, then you stand firm in your freedom and you don't let anybody take you backwards because there will be people there ready to do that, ready to hang a bandana around your neck and say that if you don't do this or you don't do that, then you're not really saved. And folks, let me say again, symbols don't save. So you stand firm in your freedoms. Back in the book of Galatians, chapter 5 verse 1 Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery you stay away from other people's lists because you don't know where they came from you stay away from their opinions and their ideas because you don't know what they're founded in and you stand firm in your freedom this is one of the most difficult teachings for the church to accept it really is But what we have to know more than anything else is that what does matter is that relationship with Jesus Christ. When we all get to heaven, there are four people that will be able to call me dad and Tina mom. Three of them you have met. There's Nick, there's Katie, and there's Eli. And then there's a baby that we never had the privilege of meeting. Those four in the kingdom of heaven will be able to call us mom and dad. We are their parents. But imagine that there was somebody else that wanted that same privilege. They wanted to be counted as one of our children. They didn't know how to pull it off, so they went out and shaved their head. And they got a white horse, and they rode their horse as much as they could, and they started to hunt birds behind black labs because Jesus does, and and so do I. And, And so they started doing all this kind of stuff, and they drove a Ford pickup, and they did all these different things to try to be like me or to be like Tina in hopes that they might be counted as one of our children it will do them absolutely no good because there are only four that have that privilege. They have been given that right because of their relationship with us. Heaven is just like that. We have the right to be called the children of God, not because of what we have done, but because of Jesus Christ. We have the right to inherit everything that Jesus offers us because of our right standing with him, because of our relationship with him. That's it. It is Jesus Christ that saves, not works, not actions, not symbols. No matter how many bandanas we hang around our neck, no matter how many things we point to and say, well, I've done this and I've done that and I've been here and I've been there. It is Jesus Christ that gives us the right to inherit the kingdom of God. Amen?
If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with him, we would love to talk with you. If you have wrestled with this issue of legalism for a long time and you want to try to unpack those bags and you need somebody to help you with it, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you'd like to talk to somebody about the church or to pray with somebody, we'd like to do that as well. Whatever your needs might be this morning, if you'll respond to this invitation, we'll make sure that they get met. We'll do our best and we'll stay at it until they are. All you have to do is go over to this door to my right, your left. Somebody will be there and meet you. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, I know this is tough stuff, especially for people that have been in the church for a long time. It can be very convicting, and my prayer is that we have all been convicted on some level, whether that is conviction unto salvation or whether that's conviction into growth, whatever it might be. Lord, would you stir that conviction in us that it might do some good, that it might draw us closer to you. And Father, would you help us all understand what it means to live in grace and to live in freedom, to live, Father, the way that you intended us to. Praying now for our invitation time. Would you let it be holy and pleasing to you? In Jesus' name, amen.